tonight, as we announced, we want to kind of take a, a break this week from our study in the book of Exodus to do another lesson in the, the person and work of the Holy Spirit. We've kind of been doing a, a series of teachings here on Wednesday nights every six or so weeks, uh, taking a break from our regular study and looking at some uh, aspect of the person, and the work, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And in prior weeks, we've uh, looked at the person and the deity of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Spirit within the world. And we took two sessions and talked about the work of the Holy Spirit uh, in the life of the church and among the church, how he ministers uh, and operates in his ministry among the church. And tonight we want to look at his ministry in the life of the believer. So uh, in light of that, why don't you turn with me to John 14 as we sort of begin here this evening. John 14, uh, we've sort of looked at some of these passages in our, some of our prior studies regarding the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and I want to bring your attention back here this evening as we kind of particularly look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Remember these chapters, John 14 through 16, we find Jesus here uh, basically sort of... Uh, you know, sharing some final words with his disciples. This is the night before his arrest and his crucifixion when his betrayal happens. And he's having sort of these last moments now with his disciples and speaking to them pertinent and important things as he's about to, in a sense, uh, depart from them and become absent from them. And he's sharing things with them that are of tremendous importance. And a lot of what's spoken in these chapters regarding this change in this upcoming transition that was going to happen uh, with his followers as the result of him uh, dying on the cross, resurrecting, ascending back into heaven, and then sending the Spirit of God to then, in a sense, come and to function in his ministry among the disciples in the same way that Jesus just had bodily and personally for those last three and a half years. Remember, he has just told them in the beginning of John chapter 14 that he was about to depart and to go away. And this was extremely alarming for the disciples. As you can understand, they were used to Jesus taking care of everything for them. Jesus taught them things. He explained things to them. When they had a problem, Jesus resolved their problem. Uh, when, they, when they needed protection, Jesus stepped in and intervened on their behalf and, and dealt with the religious leaders or whoever might be hassling them. If they had a need of provision, Jesus would do a miracle and he would provide for them. If they weren't certain regarding things regarding the kingdom of God, Jesus would explain things to them. So uh, it's no pun intended. Jesus Jesus was sort of a valuable guy to have around, if you understand what I'm saying. And now all of a sudden he's telling them, listen, I'm going to depart. I'm no longer going to be with you anymore. And this has got the disciples very alarmed. They had become extremely dependent upon Jesus in these last three and a half years that they had traveled around with him. And they cannot possibly comprehend what life would be like apart from Jesus's presence with them, apart from Jesus being with them in addressing and handling everything that came into their lives. And he's trying to speak to them now about this coming change that was about to transpire in relation to him departing and ascending back into heaven to be at the right hand of the Father once again from whence he came before his incarnation when he lived on this earth in his humanity uh, and trying to speak to them that they would not be left and abandoned in a sense, but that God had a plan in these things. And of course that plan 
man was then the sending and the coming of the Spirit of God. And through the agency of the Spirit, the same ministry that Jesus provided in the flesh, the Spirit of God would do the same for the believer, for you and I who become followers of Jesus Christ. So look with me beginning in verse 16. Let me just read verse 16 down through verse 23. We don't spend a lot of time here, but I want to just sort of set this before us as kind of this understanding of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, the follower of Christ. Jesus, again, talking about what we just spoke of, is saying to them in regards to his departure, he says, verse 16, and I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you, that is, remain with you, notice, forever. The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and he will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. Excuse me. A little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. At that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. And he who has my commandments keeps them. It's he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest, the idea is reveal myself to him. And Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him And we will notice, come to him and underline this, make our home with him, make our home with him, that there was going to be this transition where in the same way that the the permanency of the presence of Jesus Christ was a constant factor in the lives of the disciples, Jesus says, listen, in the same way, yes, I'm departing. I know this is alarming to you. I know you don't fully understand what this means, uh, and it seems somehow that you're going to be abandoned and left alone, and you're wondering, how are we going to possibly continue to follow God? How are we going to continue to know the ways of God? And, and, And Jesus is speaking to them here saying, listen, in the same way, I have been present with you. He's saying, now the Spirit of God is going to be present with you. He says in there in verse 18, I won't leave you as orphans. So nobody's saying, I'm not abandoning you. You're not going to be like an orphan that's abandoned and in a sense unable to survive and it becomes more difficult. Uh, in fact, he tells them in other places, it's to your advantage that I go away. Uh, because if I don't go away, the Spirit won't come to you. And in a sense, Jesus understood the fuller picture, how in a sense it was to the disciples' advantage that Jesus would go away. Because when Jesus was here present upon this earth and God was in flesh, living and dwelling among us as he was in the disciples, in a sense, God limited himself to the locality of the body of a man in the flesh. But yet Jesus says now, in a sense, verse 18, he says there, I will come to you And the essence is what he's trying to say is, look, in the same way, it's to your advantage. He says, because no matter where you're at now, I can be with each one of you. You know, the Bible teaches us in the New Testament, this concept of Christ in you, Christ in me. We'll talk about that in a few minutes this evening that Jesus says, look, it's to your advantage because I'm not limited by locality. Now, as I come in the person and the agency of the spirit, I can be with all believers 
Whether they're in Northfield or Ocean City or Marmora or whether they're in Salem or whether they're in California or Georgia or Australia or Russia or I can be with all believers everywhere simultaneously at the same time through the presence of his spirit being together with us in a way that is much different than him being here physically and bodily in the flesh. And Jesus here trying to help them understand this. And keep in mind as he's saying these things, this is a foreign concept for the disciples. Uh, Again, you and I on the other side of the cross, on the other side of the resurrection and the ascension, we have light and understanding through the scriptures and through the spirit of God's dwelling in us and illumination. We understand and grasp these things. For the disciples, this was a brand new concept. This, this was something that was to them completely astonishing because the Spirit of God would come upon people in the Old Testament, but it was a very rare, rare thing when the Spirit would actually enter inside of a person. So when Jesus is speaking of these things, of the Spirit's going to enter inside of you and be with you always, and I'll be with you through the presence of the Spirit. This was a very, very foreign concept to them, and Jesus is trying to help them grab hold of this. He says, verse 16, I'm going to pray the Father... And when I depart, he's going to give you, he says, another helper. Again, that word another helper, when you look at the language, it's literally a term that means another of the same kind, which is interesting because Jesus could have used a term that meant another of a different kind. But he's saying, I'm going to give you another helper, another of the exact same kind. In other words, he's saying in the same way I have been your helper for everything, And I have been by your side, the helper alongside of you, with you presently in a body of flesh for three and a half years. He says, I'm going to send you another helper of the exact same kind. And what was Jesus indicating? The fact that he was going to send the Spirit of God. He's speaking of of the fact of the, the unity of the Trinity. That the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, though three distinct persons of the Godhead, are all one. So he says, it's just going to be another helper of the exact same kind of what I was to you, he says. And notice, he may abide with you forever. Jesus says, I was with you for a season, but he will dwell with you, remain with you forever. And he calls him the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot see, he says, because it neither sees him nor knows him. Again, notice the personal pronouns. The spirit's not an it or an essence. We've talked about this in our prior studies. The spirit of God is a person. It was our first teaching on that very important thing. In the same way God the Father is a person and God the Son is the person, God the Spirit is a person as well. And we, we want to respect that reality that we would know the Father and know the Son and that we would know the Spirit. He's not an essence or some force. He's just as much a person of the Godhead. And he says, he will be with you. And it says, notice, you know him, Jesus says. Why? How do they know him? What do you mean, what do we know him? Well, how was Jesus' life conceived in the body of Mary in the womb of a virgin woman? He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God was present with Christ. Because the Spirit of Christ Christ and the Spirit of God, in a sense, are are the same. In fact, Romans 8 is the greatest uh, illustration of that when it's talking about the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God in the same verse. It says the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ, one and the same. There's this unity among the Trinity. So Jesus says, look, you know him, for he dwells with you. He has already been with you in your midst, Jesus says, but now he will be, he says, notice verse 17, in you. That was the foreign, he's going to be in us? 
The Spirit of God is actually going to be within us. He says, I won't leave you as orphans. A little while longer, he says, you will see me no more. But he says, but then you will see me. And because I live, the idea is because I'll resurrect, you will live also. You will live because of my resurrected life. And at that day, he says, verse 20, you'll know that I am in my Father and you in me, and I in you. Now, you know, the disciples, if they're anything like this, they're scratching their heads saying, wait a minute, you're trying to talk through this here, you're trying to figure, okay, you know, you, uh, you, I'm in the Father, you in me, and I in you, and who's on first, and what's on second, you know, and they're, and they're trying to put all the pieces together, fit. what is this he's talking about? I'm going to be in the Father, and you're going to be in me, and I'm going to be in you. And he says, verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it's he who loves me and will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest. Jesus says, I'll reveal myself to him. And Judas, one who wasn't Judas Iscariot, said, Lord, how's this possible? How are you going to reveal yourself to us if you're going away? Again, you're not going to be present with us. How are you going to reveal yourself to us if you're not around physically anymore? And Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we, now he includes everybody, him, the Father, the Spirit, we will come to him and notice, make our home, make our home with him. Again, the idea of the Spirit inhabiting the life of a follower of Christ, the Spirit indwelling us, being within us. So now as the result of Jesus' ascension and the outpouring of the Spirit of God upon the church at Pentecost, now ever since the resurrection and ascension of Christ back into heaven, the agency of God's work now on this earth is happening through the person of the Holy Spirit. So the moment a believing sinner prays to invite Jesus Christ into their life as Savior and Lord, and they put their faith in Christ for salvation, God, by His Spirit, enters in to the life of that individual. The Spirit of God who was with them, drawing them to Christ, convicting them of sin, convincing them that Jesus was the Savior, the Spirit of God now goes from being with them to actually indwelling them and inhabiting their life and living inside of them. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says it this way to the Christian. It says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? That the Spirit of God dwells in you. Any born-again believer who has put their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, the Bible says it is a scriptural fact that your life becomes, in a sense, God's temple on this earth and the very Spirit of God Himself dwells inside of you. God takes up residence within your life, living within you. So tonight I want to talk about the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit who dwells inside the believer. What is His ministry? What is He doing inside the life of the believer? And I kind of want to talk about that sort of almost in, in two main topics. First of all, to discuss what, what is that instant uh, ministry that happens at the moment of spiritual conversion. At the moment of a person's conversion, when they're born again or saved, these terms that we use, there is a definite group of ministries and things that the Holy Spirit does at the instant of conversion for the person who is born again and saved. And then also, secondarily, we'll talk about what then does the Holy Spirit continue to do in our ongoing walk with the Lord? That is, as we continue to walk with Jesus, what is the continuous ministry of the Holy Spirit 
in our lives. So, again, if you're a note taker, first of all, let's talk for a few minutes about at the moment of salvation, at that moment when you prayed to receive Jesus Christ, you put your faith in Christ and you experienced salvation. For me, it was July 12th. 1992 when I in my bedroom right there with a friend who had shared the gospel with me that was already a Christian I knelt by my bedside and believed the claims of the gospel understood that I was sinful realized Jesus was the savior and I put my faith and trust in Christ asked him to save me to forgive my sins at that moment conversion happened the salvation experience took place in my life and the Bible says at that moment I was indwelt with the spirit the spirit of God came on the inside he then became a part of my life he inhabited me and dwelt within me and one thing that happens instantly at the moment of conversion is what's called regeneration regeneration spiritual regeneration we might say the bringing forth of spiritual life or we might even say the restoring of spiritual life so again, what is one thing that happens at the moment instantly of conversion? Number one, regeneration. And that is absolutely critical. It's what we often refer to in the Bible as being born again, or we may say being made alive spiritually. See, the Bible very clearly teaches that before a person is saved, that we are dead spiritually. That is, we have no capacity within us in our natural birth experience. We have no spiritual faculties or capacity to have fellowship or relationship with God. The Bible teaches that we are born dead in sin and trespasses, that our spirit, the eternal part of us, is spiritually dead and separated from God. It's only at the moment of conversion that the spirit enters into our dead spirit and, in a sense, awakens or makes alive our spirit to be able to then fellowship with God. The Bible says God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And conversion is necessary for that. Again, we can trace this all the way back as far as the book of Genesis. From the very beginning, it says that God created man out of the dust of the ground. And it says that after God created man, it says he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became, it says, a living being. So God physically created the frame of man out of the dust of the ground and in this master design, this architecture, God puts together the physical frame of the human body and then he breathes his life into the nostrils of Adam in a sense. It's almost like the, you know, the computer system turns on you know, and all of a sudden Adam comes alive now and God breathes into his nostrils the breath of life and now Adam has the capacity of physical life that is, he now is awakened to experience the physical realm and he has the capacity to experience with his natural senses, physical life and existence on the physical plane. But Adam also at that moment received from God the capacity to have spiritual life because we see very clearly that from the beginning, God created man with the capacity to have relationship with God. And Adam was walking together with God in fellowship in the garden. He was in perfect harmony with God. He talked to God. God talked to him. He was comfortable to be in relationship with God. There was no sense of guilt and shame. He walked together in harmony and fellowship with God. But remember, though he had spiritual relationship with God initially, God gave Adam one prohibition. Because he said, Adam, I want a love relationship. And love must be based upon choice. 
if someone is compelled to be with someone else, that, that, that's genuinely not love. In a sense, that, that's, that's a, and God wants a love relationship. We gave Adam one prohibition. Adam, you can eat of all the trees of the garden. He says, enjoy everything that I've given to you. But he says, this one tree, this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, we know the story. What happens? Adam disobeys God. He violates the one prohibition. He takes the bait of the devil. He exercises his free will in his selfishness. And Adam disobeys God. And guess what happened? God kept his word. God said, in the day that you eat of that, you shall surely die. So Adam disobeys God. It's at that moment, the Bible tells us, Romans 5.12, that just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, thus death has spread to all men because all sin. So at the moment Adam disobeys God, death enters into the picture. That is, not only would death now physically take place in humanity, but more than that, spiritual death came about whereby something happened where in a sense, it's very obvious that, that Adam lost this harmony and relationship and fellowship that he once had with God. Again, interesting. Remember God said, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. In the day you eat of it, do you notice when you read the book of Genesis, the moment that Adam eats that tree, he doesn't, he doesn't just die. He, he doesn't, God said, in the day you eat of it, you'll die. So obviously God was speaking of something far beyond just physical death entering into humanity. He was speaking of spiritual death. That, that in a sense, Adam died spiritually because the next time you see Adam in relation to God, everything's changed. All of a sudden now, what's Adam doing? He's hiding from God. There's a sense of guilt and shame. And now he's not in harmony with God anymore. He's afraid of God. There's a sense of uncomfortableness to be around God because there's a sense of his own guilt and shame. He realizes now that he's naked. He's trying to cover himself, in a sense, through religious efforts to make himself acceptable before God. And what happened? The light went out spiritually. Adam lost spiritual life. He, his spirit died as God said that it would. And therefore, Adam not only incurred physical death, but now spiritual death has happened in his life. And the Bible teaches that what Adam had is all that he could pass on through other generations. Adam could not pass on spiritual life because he lost spiritual life. So the Bible says the result of that, we are all born spiritually dead. You know, a human being can give physical life to a child, but you can't pass on what you don't possess. So, so when a child is given birth to, in humanity now, because we are a fallen creation, we can grant physical life, but we can't grant spiritual life. So as a result, every person that is born is born, in a sense, unable to experience relationship with God. They're dead in trespasses and sins, and we need help from outside of ourselves to be saved from our spiritual paralysis, if you would. The light switch spiritually has been turned off in human beings and it requires God himself, who is the light of the world, to turn that light on to enable a person to have a relationship with God and fellowship with God. We need to be made alive spiritually by God and that happens when we embrace Jesus Christ, when we're made alive spiritually or born again. Come with me back to John chapter 3. And this is exactly really what Jesus was speaking about when he was talking, remember, to Nicodemus. 
of this whole reality. Nicodemus was a very, very religious man. John chapter 3, this is a familiar story for most of us. It says there was a man of the Pharisees, remember they were religious leaders in that day, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. So here's our story. We have this man, Nicodemus. It says he's a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews. So we, in essence, the Bible have portrayed for us here a man who is very devoutly religious. This is someone who would know scriptures. He could probably quote scriptures, probably better than most of us in this room. The Pharisees were devout in their knowledge of the law and of the scriptures. So here's someone who intellectually, he knows spiritual information very well. He's very well versed in scripture. Here's someone who prayed prayers to God in sincerity. Here's someone who attended the synagogue services routinely. In fact, he almost seems to be represented clearly here as even a religious leader of others. But yet, what do you find? Though he had all those trappings of a religious lifestyle, he still senses in his being something's missing deep in his core. And something's nagging. I don't understand. I know spiritual facts. I know the Bible. I pray prayers. Prayers. I pray prayers. <laughs> I, I, I pray prayers. I go to religious services. What's missing still? What's missing in my life? And there's something nagging in his conscience that he realizes something is missing. So he goes to reach out to Jesus at night. Look at verse 3. And Jesus answered. That's interesting. Nicodemus didn't ask a question. But the Bible says Jesus answered. Why? Because Jesus saw the question in his heart. Jesus saw the question in his heart, which is what's missing? Something's missing in my life still. And Jesus is going to say what's missing is God. You know things about God, but you don't know God. You haven't experienced God. You've experienced you know, the trappings and the formalities and the practices of the things of God, but you've never experienced God in your being. You've never had an encounter with God where you've come alive spiritually. So Jesus answers and says, most assuredly, I say to you, Here's the answer you're looking for. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, you have to have a spiritual birth to come alive and know God and experience God. It's essential to be born a second time spiritually, just like you were born the first time physically to experience physical life. Nicodemus thinking rationally, logically, how can a man be born when he's old, what are you talking about? He says, can a man enter a second time back into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus said, most assuredly, I say, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh physically is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is, noticed born of the Spirit. So again, Jesus is emphasizing, Nicodemus, listen, in the same way you only got into this physical life through one narrow means, that is the breaking of the water of the birth canal of the womb of a woman, and that which is born of flesh has given you the experience of the things in the flesh he says, in the same way, there's only one way to experience spiritual life, to experience the kingdom of God, to see 
the kingdom of God and to truly see and understand, oh, this is what it means to know God. He says, you have to have a spiritual birth. There needs to come a time where you experience God making you alive spiritually and causing you to be born of the spirit where you then, just like a newborn babe, become awakened to the spiritual realm and to eternal realities. Again, the Bible speaks of this other places like Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. It says, God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Titus tells us this in Titus 3, 4 to 6. It says, but when the kindness and love of God, our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through. Listen, how he describes the salvation experience through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Christ, our Savior. So as we accepted Christ as our Savior, the Bible says that there was a regeneration experience that happened for our dead spirit whereby God makes us come alive spiritually. And that term regeneration there literally could be translated rebirth or restoration. It refers to the act of God bringing life again to something that was once dead, that God brings life spiritually into our dead spirit at the moment of our conversion. John 6, 63, Jesus said, it is the spirit who gives life. And listen, I can't emphasize enough, this is essential to have relationship with God. It is critical to have genuine relationship with God. Romans 8 tells us this, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we then cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I love that verse there. The Spirit of God, when he inhabits and indwells us at conversion, then bears witness to our spirit, our human spirit, which was one dead, once dead, but comes alive and is made alive by God and so that then we can fellowship with God in the realm and dimension of the Spirit. It says the Spirit internally bears witness with your spirit that you're a child of God. You know, my greatest... Uh, you know, in a sense, uh, explanation of that is, is I remember clear as a bell that the moment that I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, I knew that 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 I was saved and that I knew God. And I don't know how else to explain it other than I, I, I knew I, the Spirit of God bore witness to my spirit. You're different. You're a child of God now. And, and, and I was awakened spiritually in the same way. It's so obvious and evident, the new life of a, of a brand new born baby. I, I knew the Spirit of God bore witness to my spirit. You are no longer dead. And it was like the light switch was turned on. And all of a sudden, I saw the kingdom of God. I understood. I, I see it now. And I was fully aware of that. And just this wonderful work the Spirit of God does in the life of someone when we come to Christ. Another area that we experience the ministry of the Spirit at conversion is he also baptizes us into Jesus' life personally. At the moment of your salvation, the Spirit of God baptized you into the life of Jesus himself. This is what the New Testament often refers to as being in Christ. 
to be in Christ. The Bible speaks of Christ in you, but the Bible also speaks of how we as Christians are in Christ. And that applies to two things. First of all, your spiritual position of righteousness before God, what the Bible often calls justification, or we speak of justification by faith. Romans chapters you know, 1 through 4, even into the 5th chapter, describe this explicitly, how we are by God declared righteous by our faith alone in the person and work of Jesus Christ at the moment that we accept him and put our faith in him as Savior and Lord. That God, in a sense, takes our account that has a debt of sin, and he doesn't just pay off the whole debt of sin and bring it back to zero. That'd be wonderful enough that he wipes out our debt of sin, but then after that, he then imputes into that account all of the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, And God declares a guilty sinner righteous through the person and the work of his son, Jesus Christ. So by your faith alone, God puts you in Christ. He gives you the righteousness of Christ and robes you positionally in the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. And when he looks upon your life, he no longer sees you in your past sin or your present sins. He sees you in the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, covering over your sin as you are in him positionally declared that way judicially by God himself. And that's wonderful news. Galatians 3, 26 and 27 says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And that's what happened when you got saved. You were baptized into the life of Christ and you put on Christ positionally in a sense In the same way, when you marry someone, you become one with them and you take their identity. You know, my wife took my identity. She she got her old name disappeared and, and she took a new identity. That's what happens when you become saved. You become in Christ. God sees you now in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, righteous and pure and forgiven. That's why Romans 8.1 encourages us saying, therefore, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen, do you fail still? I bet you do. I know I do. We make mistakes still. But if you're in Christ Jesus, the Bible says there's no condemnation. Because though practically we still stumble when we fall short and make mistakes, positionally you are righteous in Christ because of what the Spirit of God did. He baptized you into the life of Christ. Now in the same way, not just our position, but also our identification with the death and resurrection of Jesus is something else we are baptized into when we're baptized into Christ. Romans 6 declares this to us. Do you not know that as many as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father. Even so we should walk in newness of life. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Now, this is another aspect of being baptized in the life of Christ by the Holy Spirit that's important to understand as a Christian. Not just your identity positionally that you are now forgiven and righteous in the sight of a holy God, but but more than that, that you are united together, the Bible tells us, so much with the life of Christ that God sees you spiritually united together with the death and the resurrection of Christ, whereby 
the power of God's Spirit working in your life to put to death the power of sin over your life and to give you the resurrection power of Jesus Christ that even as Jesus died to sin and rose again, the Bible says, now you, you're one with Christ. Reckon yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And the Bible says we can now as a Christian walk in newness of life, that there is deliverance, there is liberation, there, there is complete, in a sense, you know, capability to overcome the power of sin from dominating our life through yielding to the resurrection power of Jesus Christ in our lives, that there is supernatural power available where he says we should no longer be slaves of sin. That any bondage, any, any life-dominating habit or thing that controls our life, the Bible says, listen, it, it, it'd be heretical if I said it, but the Bible says, sin shall no longer have dominion over you. You don't have to be a slave of sin. Sin does not have to dominate and rule over and control your life. Again, does the Bible teach sinless perfection? No, but the Bible clearly teaches that there is power available to be delivered from sin when you come to christ he can break the chains of bondage of whatever life dominating sin may be ruled over people i mean listen look at the testimonies of people who at one time were living a life like this and they come to christ and the lord transforms their life and he liberates people and he sets them free and it is important that we realize as we continue to walk with jesus that resurrection power of his spirit is continuously available to us and we, by faith now, the Bible says, have to reckon the old man dead continuously. Look, I'm dead to that old life. And I need to, by faith, I am dead to that and be dead to that. And by faith, yield to the resurrection life of Christ that wants to help us overcome sin. Another area that our conversion experience, the Spirit works in us, is not just to baptize us into the life of Christ, but a third area is he baptizes us into the body of Christ or what we might call the church family, that just like you were baptized into the life of Jesus spiritually, the Bible also teaches spiritually that we are baptized into the church family or the body of Christ, the believers. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, By one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. So do we have individual identities? ethnicity, race, young, old, socioeconomic status, all these things, yes. But the Bible says that when you came to Christ, you were put into a family. You were put into a family. The Spirit of God made you a child of God. And when you got saved, it doesn't matter what your past was or what your... God says you now are a part of a family. And if you ask me, it's the best family going. You have brothers and sisters in Christ. You, 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 when you marry Jesus... You were embraced into the family. Just like when you get married, when you enter into a marriage commitment, if you haven't noticed yet, on top of marrying that person, you marry the entire family, right? <laughs> you marry the whole family. When, when my wife chose to marry me, not only did she marry me, she, she became a part of a new family. The Bible says that Christ is a bridegroom. And we're the bride of Christ. And when you marry Jesus Christ, God puts you into the family of God. You're a son and a daughter of the king. You have brothers and sisters in Christ. That's an important part of who we are and a part of our calling to be individually members of one another. One other area that we want to look at regarding the Holy Spirit accomplishing in us at the moment of salvation. If you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, 
And another area the Spirit works within us in Ephesians chapter 1, we'll look at here at the moment we were saved, is He seals the believer. That we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, if you draw your attention with me to verse 13. Paul writing here says, In Him, that's Jesus he's talking about, In Jesus you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, notice, having believed, you were sealed, he says, with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So the Bible says the moment that we heard the gospel message and we put our faith in Christ that at the moment of our salvation he said another thing happened is that we were sealed it says by the Holy Spirit of promise now that term seal that Paul uses there it was a mercantile term it was a reference to how in that day when somebody would go down to the docks there uh, where the ships were and there would be a marketplace and they would purchase things in the marketplace and then let's say for example after they purchased something uh, they wanted it then to be shipped back to the home port where they were from after they purchased their cargo and they were then the owner of it they would then put everything into uh, sort of the crate and they would put a wax seal on it and then the person who purchased it himself or potentially someone maybe who is a representative of the buyer would then, with what was called a signet ring, we might call it an initial ring today, they would then push that signet ring into the wax seal as a mark of identification of who the owner was of that property. And the idea of, of that wax seal and the pushing of the signet ring to identify it with the mark of the new owner was basically to signify that property now belongs to a particular individual and it was not to be tampered with. It guaranteed the safe passage of that possession from this location to the other port. And nobody was to tamper with that seal. It was an understood thing. It was a violation to tamper with that seal. So it guaranteed ownership. It was a mark of identification. And it could not be tampered with. And that's the term that Paul uses here regarding what the Holy Spirit has done by entering into our lives. God says that he has given us the Holy Spirit of promise as a seal in our lives as believers. What God is saying is this, look, I have put my mark of ownership on you. God says, I am so confident of the security of the work that I've done in your life and salvation. God says, I have given you the most precious thing that I have, a part of myself. To let my spirit become the seal in your life, in a sense, God says, to indicate you belong to me. You don't belong to the devil. You don't belong to the world. You don't belong to anything or anyone else. You belong to me. You're my child. And what a wonderful, encouraging thing when we get concerned, when we fail, when we falter, and we stumble, and we're thinking, oh, man, you know, I really blew it, and I, boy, I'm just making so many mistakes, and maybe, and, and, or we begin to worry as the devil begins to hassle us or come against us and think, man, you know, listen, God has put his seal on you. The Bible says in Philippians 1, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. God's put his seal of ownership on you. God's not going to let anybody tamper with that. You belong to God. 
Nobody's going to tamper with God's seal. And God says, I have given you my spirit to be the actual seal in your life that you belong to me. He says, verse 14, that this is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. That word that the Holy Spirit, again, notice he also says, not only is he our seal, but he is also within us the guarantee until the time when God comes back and redeems his purchased possession, you and I who he's purchased to be a child of God. That word guarantee is a reference to a down payment that's made upon something. Again, and what is a down payment? A down payment guarantees the sincerity of the buyer to finish a transaction. When you go to purchase something, you may put a down payment on that. And when you put a down payment on it or a guarantee, or we talk about earnest money in a real estate transaction, the idea is, is listen, I am giving this up front to validate and to verify that I plan on finishing this transaction. I am completely committed to and very sincere about following through and finishing this transaction. And God says, I am so much wanting you to know that I plan on finishing the transaction that I started in your life. I am going to give to you my spirit as the guarantee in your life as the down payment, God says, it's my down payment. It's my assurance to you that I plan on coming back and finishing this eternal transaction in your life. That I'm going to come back and pick you up and bring you home to be with me and finish the spiritual and eternal transaction of salvation. Again, God has given that to us. It's almost the idea, same way of you know, like when you get engaged, you, you give someone a diamond ring. You give them that, that guarantee, that, that indication. You know, when my wife and I were intending to get married, when I asked the question and she, by the grace of God, said yes, I gave to her at that moment something as a guarantee. I gave to her the most valuable thing that I could possibly afford to give to her as a guarantee that I planned on finishing the transaction. And there was two things behind that. One was giving that to her in a sense to communicate to everyone else, she belongs to me. Not to anyone else. She belongs to me and we belong together. And it also indicated to her, I am very serious and I want you to know because of the value of what I'm giving to you that I plan on finishing this transaction of love with you. That I plan on taking it completely through the entire process. And listen, God is saying here to us, I've given you my spirit because I want you to know and I want everyone to know that you belong to me. The Bible says that he who is in us is greater than he who's in this world. The tremendous security we have. Does the devil hassle us? Yes. Does he give us a hard time? Yes. But listen, God sealed you by his spirit. You belong to the Lord. And God's not going to timeshare with the devil. God's not going to allow the devil to have access into your life in ways. This is why I do not believe that a, that a truly born-again Christian who has the Spirit of God indwelling in them can be demon-possessed. And there are those that teach that. There are those trying to teach that a Christian can become demon-possessed. Can a Christian be harassed by demons? Absolutely. I, absolutely. We can be harassed. But I don't believe a Christian who is sealed with the Spirit of God can be demon-possessed. To me, a lot of times I think that that is just a shallow excuse at times that people want to use to justify 
submitting to their flesh. You know what? Well, I'm, 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 I'm sorry. That we, I have this demon that's entered in me and it's making me struggle. I have, the, I have the demon of drugs or the demon of lust or the demon of alcoholism. No, you don't. You have a problem with your flesh. And you haven't learned how to put to death your flesh and to yield to the Spirit and walk in the Spirit. Don't blame that on God. That somehow God's seal has been tampered on your life. I mean, that's a mockery to God. God has sealed us. We belong to Him. And God says, look, when I commit to something, I plan on finishing it. That's my down payment. That's a pretty valuable down payment that God's given. That should make us feel pretty confident that the Lord saved you but he also plans on coming back and picking you up as a redemption in his possession. That's why Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you. And he says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. That where I am, you may be also. And then what a tremendous, tremendous encouragement that is for us. Come with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. <clears throat> Just point out one last passage that kind of speaks of this and much to my surprise I'm not going to get to the whole second topic I wanted to talk about so <laughs> I'm having fun though if you're not <laughs> Second Corinthians 5 and this is probably a good place to end and next time we'll talk about the continuing ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believers we kind of talked about his work at the moment of salvation next time together we'll We'll talk about his continual work within our lives, kind of the second half. But here again, this is the same concept of this guarantee of the Spirit given to us. And here, notice, it kind of expounds and expands upon this idea of God finishing the process in our lives, the redemption of our bodies and get, getting these weak bodies, in a sense, set aside that we can give us the complete experience of our salvation. Second Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 5.1 he says, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed. So again, the Bible speaks of your present body as a tent. Tents are what? They're temporary dwellings. They're not intended to be permanent. They're temporary dwellings because they wear out. If you try and use a tent longer than necessary, it starts to wear out. It's not a permanent dwelling. It's a temporary dwelling. The Bible says our physical frame, these bodies... They're tents, and they will be destroyed. They age, sickness, suffering. They, they deteriorate in a fallen condition, in a fallen world. But he says, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands that's eternal in the heavens. For in this, that is your body, he says, we groan. So if you groaned and creaked as you got up this morning, you're fulfilling scripture. There you go. You're dying. It happens to all of us. <laughs> For in this tent we groan, why? Earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. The idea is a disembodied spirit. What he's speaking of is that in these bodies, you now possess eternal life. The spirit of the living God, the eternal spirit himself, dwells inside of you and because of that the eternal spirit of God dwelling inside of you longs to be in the eternal dimension but yet right now you're in a temporal fallen body 
And so this temporal fallen body causes this constant conflict where there's a part of you that desires to experience what God ultimately has ahead, that you're going to get an eternal body. A body not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, that's healthy and perfect, free from sickness and pain and suffering. You notice he says, we're not going to be found naked or disembodied. Again, understand, when we get to heaven, we're not going to be a disembodied spirit just kind of floating around. No, we're going to have a literal physical experience. We're going to be able to embrace and hug people. And hold on to people that we love and that we miss and that we're reunited with. I mean, this we're not going to be just floating around like ghosts and go, let's try again for the you know, 17 billionth time, you know, and missing each other. No, there's, there's a physical experience. Jesus and his resurrected body, remember, he ate. People were clinging to him. There was a physical substance. It's a different type of body. But it is a physical experience, he says, not that we may be found naked. For we, verse 4, who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but notice, further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing, this coming redemption when God comes back to get us, whether through death or the rapture, he who has prepared us for this thing is God, here's our term, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. God's given his Spirit as a guarantee of that ultimate redemptive process where he ultimately redeems our body to couple it together with our redeemed Spirit. But what an amazing thing. You know, one thing I would say is this as well, as you look at this and it speaks of the eternal experience that's yet ahead of us. It reminds us how, you know, one of the things that happens as you're sealed with the Spirit and God puts his down payment of his Spirit into your life as a deposit into your life, is you notice how it makes you start to ache for eternity. And it makes you start to long to want to be in heaven. Where you groan. Where, whereas your physical frame is gets weary and you get tired and you're realizing, man, I, I, I just can't do what I used to do five years ago. Or, you know, this, now this is creaking or now this is falling apart or now this is hurting or I keep getting sick. And, and, and God says there's something where eternity is deposited in your heart because the eternal spirit of God has been deposited in your heart where you start to long for that reality where you realize one day I'm going to shed this physical frame. And I'm not going to have to suffer anymore. And I won't ever get sick again. And I won't experience affliction. There's no more pain or suffering. And, and, and one day I'm going to have a perfect, glorified, eternal body. And one day I'm going to experience all that God's intended for me. And, and it's almost like when God deposits His Spirit within you, He just ruins you for earth. But see, that's purposeful. That's purposeful. If you find within yourself a groaning, nagging experience whereby, in a sense, there's always a part of you that aches for eternity, listen, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Now, I don't think that should cause us, in a sense, to always be, oh, I just want to go to heaven. I just want to go to heaven. I hate people. can't stand them. I just want to go to heaven. I hate people. can't stand just can't wait to get out. Can you please come back? I can't stand these people. Just get me out of this place. Because sometimes Christians get like that. No, 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 we shouldn't get like that. But there should be a part of us that aches and longs to want to be in the presence of God because, see, that's the master plan. God's, in a sense, God spoiled you for eternity and he's letting you live in a temporal body that struggles with sickness. Listen, 
and allows you to be frustrated when you wrestle with your sinful nature and you fail in your flesh and you're frustrated with yourself because you failed in the flesh again and to realize one day you get to get rid of the sin nature and you get to be in the presence of God in a perfect glorified body that should make you say, man, man, Lord, forgive me for failing in this area again, my attitude, what I said, and Lord, thank you so much. Thank you so much that one day I will never struggle with this sin again. One day I'll be set free from it in a perfect, glorified body. What a great thing to consider.